Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode 18 of the Yacking Podcast. We talk about life, business, and more, and we bring you tips and ideas for a changing world, and it's very much a changing world at the moment. We have two interesting guests for you today, but first of all, I'd like to welcome Kathleen, our co-host down in Kitchener, Ontario, and ask her to introduce our guests. Hi, Kathleen. Hello, Peter, and welcome, everyone. So great of you to uh, tune in. And yes, we do have two special guests today, husband and wife team, Lou and Karen. Welcome. Uh, I'm going to throw it right to you right away. Just please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Well, I was born in Asheville, North Carolina, the son of a cab driver. Uh, Dad was not well educated. He left school at the eighth grade in 1916 to go to work for the railroad and then lied about his age to join the Navy a few uh, months shy of his 17th birthday in 1920. Uh, But that started for him a uh, lifelong career that uh, uh, ended up with him retiring from the Naval Reserve in 1964. I never saw him read, uh, but he was a tremendously well-educated, self-educated man. And uh, we did not have a lot of money, but uh, I did have a bicycle and a paper route, and I worked my way through uh, college. Uh, I had a stupendous teacher in high school, Mother Kathleen Winters, whom all of us stayed in touch with for many years until she died in the uh, 90s. And she was a big impact on me and all of the other students. Karen? (laughs) Um, I grew up in at the other end of the country in San Diego. Um, I was, uh, I had a rather really large extended family. We counted up the cousins one time and there were over 30 cousins. Yeah. Um, And we used to get together a couple times a year for massive family picnics, Mm -hmm. and it was was wonderful. We'd have these Knowles barred volleyball games. Um, As long as you didn't draw blood, everything else was okay. (laughs) (laughs) And even if you did, you know, whatever. So, um, but it was was nice. Um, My parents always knew where to find me. I was on the couch reading, you know, on my stomach with a book and never failed. I went off to college in Colorado, and because my cousin was going there and I went to join him and uh, ended up as a teacher, ended up um, taking a break from teaching and went back out to California. And that's where I met Lou in the swim pool, the gym that we both were frequenting in, in Monterey. So. <laughs> that's an interesting place to meet one's uh, partner, isn't it? In the gym. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lou, you had a career in the Navy and you were an engineer. What, what led you there? <clears throat> What was interesting, somewhere along the line in high school, my father, or actually in grade school, my father brought me a crystal radio, uh, which started me off in electronics, uh, and somewhere along the line, I developed an interest in ham radio, and although we didn't have much money, I had a mentor uh, down there, uh, Everest McDade, W4DYW, And uh, he basically uh, helped me convert old World War II surplus aircraft radios. uh, And I would also uh, 
uh, get old television chassis, discarded ones, and bring them home and strip them for parts. And by the time I uh, graduated from high school, I had designed a uh, voice and Morse code transmitter uh, very nicely with his assistance. And as for the Navy, uh, I was looking at not much of a chance of going to college because even with scholarships, uh, my dad was not going to be able to pay the bill. So uh, a few months after my 17th birthday, uh, while I was still a junior in high school, I joined the Naval Reserve at Naval Air Station Atlanta. Uh, they had a good program of two years drilling reserve, uh, two years active duty, followed by two more drilling reserve years. Uh, and that looked like a chance to get into college on the GI Bill, uh, just a few years behind my contemporaries. So I went to boot camp during my junior, senior summer, and of all places, Naval Air Station, Olathe, Kansas, and uh, had a couple of enjoyable weekends at Naval, drilling weekends at Naval Air Station, Atlanta, without any adult supervision. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, when I had enlisted, uh, I had had fairly decent scores, and I pushed a whole lot of papers in front of me, and one of them was an application to the Naval Academy, which I had forgotten about. <laughs> I got back from boot camp and found uh, that I was to go to Charleston for a physical, and then there was uh, some more paperwork, uh, and basically by January of my senior year, uh, I was given an appointment to the class of 1970. So I joined the Navy with the intention of solving my college problems, and it certainly did that. <laughs> uh, well done. <laughs> uh, so Karen, how did you get into teaching? You know, when I think back on it, it, it just seems like there, after high school, there wasn't anything else that I really wanted to do. I had some extremely good teachers in high school, especially Mr. Higby, who was my senior high school, or senior, senior English teacher. And he was amazing. He challenged us constantly to read beyond the, what the written word was, to look for the hidden meanings, to to write, to be concise in our writing. And, and um, he was just, he was phenomenal. And, he, and it just, I wanted to continue that. I wanted to challenge other kid people in my students, basically, to do the same sort of thing. You know, read, grow, write, grow, become better. And it just, I think I did it. I'm not sure, but I think I did. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I've got a story about an influential teacher, but I think uh, Kathleen has one as well, don't you? I, I do. Well, um, you know, I, I have such respect for wonderful teachers because, I mean, I, I, I have the memory of Mrs. Clark, my fifth grade teacher, and she will forever remain in my heart. And uh, she, she was one of these teachers that, you know, I came from the fourth grade having a terrible teacher I have to say 
who made me feel, who always seemed to belittle me. And Mrs. Clark made me feel so uh, validated and intelligent. She, she gave, she empowered me to, you know, she made me feel like um, I was, I was smart enough to, to, to excel in her class. And, and boy, did I, and that's, you know, I have such respect because you impact people's lives forever in how you teach them. So you don't usually find out too. Um, I went back to see Mr. Higby about a couple of years after I had graduated from high school and he was stunned. You know, I just went back to say, Hey, thank you. You know, and he was just stunned by it. And I do remember, Oh, probably about 10 years before I retired, I was in the classroom one day and this, <laughs> this young man walks in, in the middle of class with a mohawk. And I'm like, um, who are you? Michael! You know, <laughs> he came back to say hi and thank you. And it, it just, the, the kids changed so much from junior high into high school and, and beyond that it's almost hard to recognize them sometimes until they open their mouths and talk. And then you know who it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. My internet is not doing too well. I think yeah, I lost you for a, a few seconds a bit earlier. So, but fortunately, your side, both of you seem to be good. My my story was the opposite uh, with a teacher, and it, but it, I'll repeat it because it just shows how how a teacher's thoughtless words can influence someone for a lifetime. And my one was uh, in about when I was about eleven. I I guess we started doing music and singing lessons at school, and our English teacher was a very fierce Scottish lady by the name of Mrs. McLeod. And at the first singing lesson, she said to me, Peter Wright, you are absolutely useless. You will never be able to carry a note, play an instrument, or read music. So when you come next week, bring a book and sit in the corner. You're disturbing the rest of the class. So for my whole junior, honestly, my whole junior school, I took a book and sat in the corner. And, you know, I believed her for 50 years until mm. about four or five years ago, I needed a big goal and uh, – I went out and bought a guitar and some music books and taught myself to play it and read music. And I'm not good, but I've taken lessons and I can play a tune in church. So just to prove her wrong. But as I say, I live with that for a lifetime. So I'm glad you're one of the others that, Karen, that uh, inspired your students instead of putting them off. <laughs> I want to ask Lou, uh, when we were talking a little while back, you were telling me about a book that you read back in the 70s that, that was really influential on you. What was that? Well, that would actually probably be more like late 50s, early 60s. But oh. That would be Robert uh, Heinlein. Okay. Uh, he was very prolific science fiction writer mm. of that era. Uh, interestingly, it turns out he was a Naval Academy graduate of the class of 1922. Wow. And he got a medical discharge from the Navy because he was, uh, he developed uh, tuberculosis uh, in 1930, and he spent his time trying to earn a living uh, in the Depression uh, as an author. And he did eventually succeed, but I'm sure it took him a while. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I particularly liked about his books were very ordinary people doing extraordinary things uh, in the not too far distant future with very credible science. And it just really appealed to my technical mm -hmm. side. I could see myself doing the things that 
he had people, sometimes people my age were building rockets in the garage, for instance. <laughs> and that appealed to me. <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> Never built one. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, and another one that was uh, very influential on me was Rudyard Kipling. Oh, yes. Uh, I have a dog-eared, uh, rather worn-out volume <laughs> with the spine taped up of the book I read uh, when I was about 14. And I liked his poetry so much, uh, I wound up memorizing quite a bit of it. And to this day, to Karen's chagrin, I, I, alcohol, I can still quote Gunga Din. Oh, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorites as a kid. They were, we were in England, and they were having a karaoke at a bar at a pub. Oh, dear pub. And uh, I got up and my contribution was to recite Gunga Din in my very poor uh, imitation cockney <laughs> accent. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I consider him again to be first off a master poet for meter and rhyming. And he is also remarkable for his ability to tell stories, again, of very ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Yep. And in a lot of ways, it influences how I write my characters. Unusual, pe ordinary people. Right. No superpowers. <laughs> oftentimes, not sure what they're going to do, but hoping like hell it works out. It works out. Very <laughs> good. So it's those two authors in particular that gave you the writing bug then? Mm, it's, um, they, they certainly contributed it to it. Uh, I did a little bit of writing when I was in um, um, high school. I just recently found some of those things and was surprised it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but I never got around to actually finishing anything until uh, the 1990s. Right. And so, and so Karen and, and you, you both work together. So husband and wife team, what's the secret to working together as a husband and wife team? <laughs> oh, I'd say probably the most important thing is to just put your ego aside. You know, you have to just realize that you're the that in my case, I have to trust him to be an honest critic. And I have to, you know, if he, if he criticizes something in my work, I have to accept it because it's not like he's trying to hurt me or anything. He's trying to help me. Every word that I think far too many authors think that every single word they write is golden. And every paragraph is the quintessential paragraph, you know, the highest form of literature ever. And that's just not true. You know, we, we have to accept that, that most of our words are maybe brass, if we're lucky, you know, and we just have to polish them some. And that's what we do for each other. You know, we, we point out where each other's got oopses and help each other get better at it. Uh, you know, and I continued working on electronics as a hobby after we got married and building various little things because I enjoyed doing that. And of course, these things never work right the first time. Mm -hmm. And I found Karen, <laughs> although she did not have 
some of my technical knowledge was the person who always asked the right question and would lead me around to asking the questions I should have been asking myself. Uh, starting with a very basic one, dear, did you plug it in? Ah, good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I, and again, taking criticism for, from her, uh, my gosh, I take criticism from her every day, so criticizing my writing. Hey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've, obviously, you've obviously got it right, though, so yeah. <laughs> it's working for you. That's really good. Lou, just again, reading, when I read the things you write about, you, you write about all sorts of stuff from, um, you know, historical, technical, futuristic, uh, that that's a huge range. How how do you do that? And uh, well, I guess that's the Robert Heinlein and also the Isaac Asimov influence on my writing. Uh, historical fiction appeals to me both to read and write. I like transporting my readers back in time, and I want them. If I'm going to put them back in the uh, uh, first century. I want them to see what it was like to get around and live in the first century, in the ordinary things. How do you make a fire? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, on the eagle and the dragon, I had to uh, uh, find out how caravans work, because for a period of time, my Romans uh, were riding on a caravan on the Great Silk Road. And I did a lot of research on a, on caravans to the extent that there was any because a lot of this stuff was never written down. A lot of these people mm -hmm. didn't even know how to read and write themselves. And so I uh, looked at modern caravans and I found a person could work his way up from an animal tender uh, to owning his own animal to owning a string of animals and so forth. And uh, that allowed him to pack more and more goods as part of the caravan for free. And then I looked at how far a caravan might go, and I figured they can't go more than 1,500 or 1,000 miles because of their speed. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and they have to know the terrain, they have to know the languages, they have to know the weather, they have to know the security. And then I looked at uh, uh, the places where they stopped, and I kind of modeled them. They had to work an awful lot like truck stops. Yeah. Because they would be a building that would provide security for what they were carrying. It would uh, provide fodder and pasture for the animals, quite a lot of animals, maybe 500, uh, and it would uh, provide uh, sleeping facilities, bars, baths, maybe women, uh, and the locals, I am very sure, would kind of uh, really celebrate the uh, caravan coming down. So in the end, you get to ride a caravan. <laughs> Interesting and, stuff. And Karen, been... what, what do you write about? Um, I do primarily historical fiction also. My the first book I wrote is called Parham's Mill, and it was actually historical 
fantasy or paranormal. It's it's a young adult. Um, I wrote it simply to prove to myself that I could write a book, you know, because I didn't know if I could actually do that. And uh, it turned out really nicely. And I went to write the a sequel to that and got hung up in a character sketch that turned into a short story that turned into a full novel called Ruby. It has nothing to do with Parham's Mill. Um, <laughs> it just kind of grew out of something from it. And um, it's historical fiction about a young woman in the depression who loses her job and she gets on a bus to go home and does not make it. And it's the story of what happens to her and how she rebuilds her life and then turns around to rebuild others, help other women to rebuild theirs, basically. Um, and that led into book number three that I just finished the draft of um, last week, actually, end of last week. And now I'm into the editing. And it is about a uh, it's historical fiction. Also, it's about a, a young doctor in 1939 who goes in to see the new movie, Wizard of Oz, you know, first Technicolor movie goes in and the newsreel before the movie is about um, the German invasion of Poland. And he is appalled. He's treating, he works in a veterans hospital treating men from the Great War. His brother died in the Great War and he's watching guys on horses attacking tanks and he's, he has to go do something. So he goes to England and joins the Royal Army Medical Corps. And it's just his story of how he goes through the war and grows and changes and all sorts of stuff happens. It's, I think it's pretty good. We'll see. And, and he's serving. <laughs> Sounds interesting. And he's serving with uh, one of oh, the most yeah. uh, colorful divisions the British had, which was the 51st <laughs> Highland Division. They were pretty and, darn cool. And it turns out there was a local American doctor. Uh, she actually had started writing this before she found out, but <laughs> Edward Stone actually did that same thing. He mm -hmm. was a doctor from Arlington, uh, and so he had to get written into that book. Oh, yeah. There's um, a lot of, of, I have found that, especially with this this latest novel, that there have been a lot of, I don't know, seren moments of serendipity, if you will, where things just had to be written because they were real, you know, mm -hmm. I just, and that was one of them too. So. Mm -hmm. Amazing. But it's, it's not so, it's not so strange. I'll just take you back when I was serving in the military in Rhodesia, which was many years ago, but you would know the name. Mm -hmm. We had a couple, a couple of Americans and a couple of, uh, certainly one Canadian that I can remember and a Frenchman. I don't know why, but they were there serving with us. Um, mm -hmm. So people do get involved in wars to which they might not really belong. Yes. I think Kathleen's going to ask you something about uh, advice for writers, if I remember rightly. Well, yes, that's well. you just asked the question, Peter. Yeah. Um, if you have any advice for writers, what, what, what would you say? What, what would you say to them? I would say for the first uh, part, uh, the hardest sentence to write in your book is the first one. And the second hardest sentence to write is the last one. <laughs> and so don't quit. Press on. Don't second guess yourself. Just get to that last sentence of your book uh, and accept the fact that your first draft is exactly that. It's a first draft. Oh, yeah. It's not perfect. You're not going to write a perfect first draft. 
uh, and spend a lot of time editing, polishing, and making it perfect in the editing phase, but get your story down first. And secondly, I think a writer needs to develop a thick skin. You're going to get a lot of criticism mm -hmm. uh, from your editors. Uh, you're going to get criticism from people who don't like your book. Yeah. Uh, and if you're going to go traditionally published, you're going to get a lot of rejection letters from agents who say, thank you, but no. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you have got to have that thick skin so that you don't get discouraged. Absolutely. Just picking up from that, uh, Lou and Karen, publishing, do you self-publish? Do you work through a publisher? What do you suggest? We are self-published through Amazon, yes. Through Amazon, um, right. It works very well. And, um, you know, we, Lou, Lou mentioned the rejection letters. He tried with Eagle and the Dragon for a while to, to get it um, accepted by publishers and, and just couldn't develop the interest, which I don't know why. But so we just decided to heck with it. You know, um, we'll just do it ourselves. Yep. Uh, and I think our age uh, <laughs> crack, cranks into it a lot. Uh, if you go traditionally published, it can take you up to a year to Minimal. find an agent. And most of your rejections are actually because they're uh, getting 400 submissions a month. Right. And they're only picking a few a year to push as books. So you're as much what's on their plate when your mm -hmm. submission hits as it is uh, the quality of your work. Uh, the other thing is uh, after it's been accepted by an agent, you may go through another two or three years uh, for the publisher to actually get it in print. Sure. And even and, though we're self-published, well, even though we're self-published, you know, we are really conscious of making that product as close to perfect as we can. Sure. You mentioned, you know, your first draft and then 10 more times editing probably. Um, we've both read books that were self-published and they did a lousy job of editing and it's painful and we will not do that to somebody. <laughs> you know, we will not do it. And I'm reading one that's traditionally published and it's got <laughs> many more errors in it than I would accept from a traditional publisher. It's mm -hmm. a small house, but you yeah. know, it doesn't speak well to that house. And then you market your books on social media and with a group of other authors, if I understand correctly? Uh, that is correct, yes. we uh, Facebook has been our primary uh, vehicle for marketing, and we've both done very well. Uh, I think the typical book sells perhaps 150 books over its lifetime for the self-published author. Uh, Karen... Uh, and I both are selling around a hundred a month, uh, at least now. Uh, yeah. Very and, good. Yeah. Makes yeah. us very happy. <laughs> Makes us very happy. And we're almost breaking even on the advertising budget. <laughs> Finally. 
That, that's good progress. We, we're going to be running out of time in a moment. So I, let me just ask for our listeners and viewers, how can they get your book and how can they make contact with you? Okay. Uh, you can get both our books on Amazon. Uh, just look up Karen D. McIntyre or Lewis McIntyre on Amazon and you will find uh, our books on there. Uh, we both have uh, Facebook pages. My author's page is Lewis McIntyre Author, and that has links to individual pages on my book, The Eagle and the Dragon, uh, Come Follow Me, and uh, True Believers, The Founding Fathers of Takamo, which hasn't been published yet. Uh, Karen? Same, yeah, like you said, um, Amazon. Both of them are available on Amazon. If you're looking for Ruby, you have to say Ruby by Karen D. McIntyre because apparently there's a lot of books out there named Ruby. I guess so, Ruby. Wonderful. And we will, for our viewers, you can pick up the caption at the bottom of your screen for those links that we've just been talking about and also in the description of the, this episode. You'll find them there too. Uh, that's, uh, we're running out of time. Kathleen, have you got any final thoughts or words for our guests? We thank you so much for joining us today and uh, thank all of you for tuning in and, and uh, we will see you next time. So thank you so thank much. Thank you for, for having us. us. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you guys.